This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. Now, confidence is something that one has to practice. It's not a talent one's born with. For a day-to-day basis, for us, for people in general, you need to practice confidence and the battle imposter syndrome for real, especially for women in the professional space. And welcome back to another episode of Redefining Ambition. I'm your co-host, Jamie Vinnick, founder and president of the Women's Network. And today's episode features a very inspiring guest, Gabby Hirata. Gabby is the president of Diane von Furstenberg and has an extensive background working in the fashion industry. She quickly rose through the ranks at Ralph Lauren and later landed the role as chief strategy officer at Jill Stewart International before ultimately taking a job at DVF. The DVF is a personal mentor of Gabby's, which she will share more about later in the episode. Hope you enjoy our conversation and make sure to follow us on Instagram at Redefining Ambition. Gabby, thank you so much for coming on Redefining Ambition. It's lovely to have you on. Thanks for having me. Uh, So you are coming in here from New York, um, but I love to understand the upbringing, the background of the guest. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about where you grew up, some of your early upbringing memories and early influences that ultimately shaped your perspective and career interests. So I grew up, I was born and grew up in Beijing, China and only came to the U.S. for undergraduate. So when I was 18 years old. So even to this day, I always say to the shareholders, that what distinguished me from any other executives or candidates that they are used to is that I'm culturally Chinese, professionally American. Growing up in Beijing in the 90s was really magical. The speed and drasticness of change, the societal flexibility is defined as one's likelihood, well, somehow nobody, uh, changing his or her life by really seeing and grabbing the opportunity. So that notion that anything is possible, I think fundamentally uh, shaped who I am and really gave me the strength and courage at a crucial time for me to raise my hand in the most unimaginable situation to say, I have a solution, choose me. So Mm -hmm. I would say that is what influenced me the most and to this day, every single day. Wow. Um, And we will get into all of that as being an advocate as an executive. So you fly to the US, you attended college, you attended Franklin and Marshall, where you studied art history and Japanese. Before you headed off, why did you want to come to the US for school? And were you nervous? I would use one word to define my decision that was optimization. Mm. So a bit of a tips on our culture, Chinese culture. So Chinese family and ideology prefers sons to daughters, basically men to women. Um, 
in professional settings especially. So while my own family is actually well-educated enough to not share that ideology, or at least not tell me <laughs> about it, I see that for me to compete in this society, I would be swimming against the tide. Um, at that time, which was the early 2000s, that was the case. So, but not only I was optimistic that the world and the society will change and that gender equality will improve, I actually visualized myself playing a very active part in improving that and challenging that male-dominant ideology. So to do that, I think at that time I thought, I talked to my, I said to myself, I needed to design my own life as if it is a case study, like a silver bullet. Uh, like step one was to strengthen myself through participating in the best education in the world, which is undoubtedly United States. Mm-hmm. Were you someone who considered yourself to be ambitious prior to heading off to school, or was that often suppressed by the fact that you were not a man? I am very ambitious. I have always been super competitive as a child. Um, and I think that goes back to overall the education environment in China. Very, it's a big privilege. I always say this is a big privilege to be born into a family like what I, my family, which is in Beijing. It's a middle upper class where the schools I go to, I'm, I was surrounded by children who are very competitive and who are very smart as well. So I think that is crucial. But yeah, I think being ambitious uh, for a woman in China at that time, even now a little bit too, is not considered a nice or desirable thing. And that's also why I wanted to go to a place where uh, a woman's ambition is celebrated. Mm. So you go off to school. What was the biggest surprise you encountered as a foreigner on American soil? Well, first, uh, if you know where Franklin Marshall College is, it's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So I was told it's called Lancaster City. And obviously, I grew up in Beijing where skyscrapers were literally next door to my home. So when I arrived in Lancaster, uh, this dean took me to uh, like uh, the downtown, the city downtown for a tour. So the downtown I think about is like financial district in New York City where I live right now. So when I uh, when I was walking around Lancaster downtown, I said, where are the tall buildings? <laughs> the tallest building was literally like seven, seven floors. Uh, so that was the biggest uh, shock. But I have to say I'm so grateful to spend my four years there because there's literally no distraction. And it's also cultivated in me appreciation for nature, for craftsmanship, because there's a um, in Lancaster, there's a downtown Central Market, I think called Central Market, where Amish uh, will have their um, handmade items for sale. And that's like really uh, fascinating to me. Wow, that is a hilarious story. So <laughs> when did this interest in fashion or art cultivate or, or really develop? And did you ever think you would envision yourself pursuing a career in this industry? So when I was a senior in high school, the movie Devil Wears Prada came out that year. I was so mesmerized by the movie, especially the opening scene where different women were getting ready. If you remember that movie, they step, they were like putting on makeup, uh, picking the outfit they want to wear and stepping out of their apartments in the city. So as a kid, I have this habit of visualizing uh, my future. All I need is a tiny 
tiny detail, like an image or sometimes a sound, a feeling, and I can expand a whole world, a whole life uh, from that small detail. So that movie, the opening uh, scene, really anchored my visualization that one day I will live in New York City and I have this fashion career. I knew that I, I, I didn't know anyone from New York City or from the fashion industry at that time. So very early on, I started visualizing, um, strategizing how to make myself the best candidate and the most competitive for this industry. And at that time at the FNM, because it's liberal arts college, it's not a fashion school. I chose um, art history. Uh, so I think that was the closest to the fashion uh, that I can find at school. When did you realize you had this kind of epiphany that that is the direction you want to take your career? Were you a freshman, sophomore, or were you in the latter stages of your experience? Uh, the movie um, was the beginning uh, starting point, right? So that was when I was in high school. Uh, when I arrived in college, uh, the best thing about liberal arts education that you explore so many different things and you kind of uh, study to kind of are educated in a, in a general way. And uh, I think freshman year was when I made determination I wanted to be in the fashion industry because I think this is where I can have an edge, which is appreciation for creativity and for art and understanding of practicality and understanding of business. I think that's where I had the biggest edge and the likelihood to succeed. There are so many young students who feel like they have to attach themselves to a particular major and then they have to interpret the major to the exact extent upon which it's traditionally pursued and interpreted. Did you feel like you were going to be held back or behind because you were not studying something directly within the realm of fashion? Yeah, oh my God, what a good question. I was so frustrated at some point for not having a fashion major at FNM and it's a liberal arts college, it's about education. I felt I couldn't be as competitive as the FIT Parsons students. I even thought about transfer at that time. But now looking back, was the best thing ever that I majored in art history and the liberal arts education because it really cultivated in me ability to think creatively and ability to think critically. Um, and the, on art history, I can't remember anything from art history, uh, but one feeling that stayed with me, and I was a straight A student, uh, of course, at college, well, the feeling that stayed with me is that the best artists are the ones who captured the first wave of their society. Somehow they're able to understand it and they're able to do something about it. And then that became the biggest name artist. So that really got in me ability to, I think about history where the, you notice me using the word societal all the time. I think about the world trend, not fashion trend, but where the societies are going. I think about the Chinese society, the American society. It's almost like social studies and somehow apply all of that to how I personally advance in my career as well as how I lead a company. Wow. What would you say to yourself in looking back at that time? I'm so happy you shared that about capitalizing the opportunities on campus, making the most of your college experience. Does your major actually matter or is it 
other qualities, your work ethic, your ability to meet people and develop a network? It's honestly really all connected. If you have a passion, which is the most important thing, everything you do, somehow you're able to see how it can benefit your passion. So as I mentioned, even studying art history uh, allows me to understand the ability to to perceive and take advantage of societal change. And then I use that for my passion in fashion. The determination to work really hard and to succeed in the major you choose, it's really come down to transferable skills that you will take from studying art, you know, from studying biology, studying whatever, and then apply it to the career you want. That's really good advice. So you graduate from college and I always ask people, how did you get your foot in the door in an industry that is notoriously so competitive to get a start? I think that story <laughs> now became a little bit virus because uh, Diane and I did an interview and we talked about that and now I have people reaching out to me from the internet saying, oh my God, your initial story was so crazy. Uh, basically how I got kicked out of a building. <laughs> so I was, uh, I was a sophomore in, uh, in college. As I mentioned, I did not know anyone from the New York City fashion industry as my school is not a fashion school. I took, um, I took a deck of my resume and portfolio and took Amtrak from Lancaster to New York City. And I heard, well, not I heard, well, heard the Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> there is a fashion district, right, in New York City. So you can just Google fashion district. And that's like a 38th Street to 42nd Street, 7th Avenue. There's a fashion avenue. So I was like, okay, got that. So I just started walking uh, building by building, walking in, into the building, knocking on the door. Uh, I got to a lot of factories. Um, so there's sample room in, in New York City that make um, samples for fashion brands. And they, are, um, they were run by Chinese owners. So actually, we were able to make connection with them. And that thing was, oh, it's not that's too scary. I can just introduce myself. And there's the golden building, which is like so beautiful. It's 550 Broadway. It's con what's considered one of the fashion landmarks. Uh, it looks so important. I was like, I have to go in. But that building was so important. You have to um, scan your card to go in. And they're like, oh, if you don't work here, don't have a card, you can't go in. I was like, okay. And I saw on the the board where it says like who's in the building says Ralph Lauren, also the rent, all the important names, Donna Karen. So I was like, I have to go in and I saw there's a freight elevator and there's a guy who was carrying like a lot of water, like bottled water into the building. And he was, he, he had access to the freight elevator, the side door, and it's attacked with him and just went in. I was like, my heart was beating really fast. And I thought, oh my God, this is where the movie scene. So I got an elevator, I got on the third floor. I was passing my resume to uh, Ralph Lauren employees when a giant guy came up to me and said that you're trespassing the building. Uh, you have to follow me right now to the outside building. If not, I have to call the police. So I said, okay, okay, fine. Uh, and I just the uh, exit building, but I didn't feel scared or bad at all, which is so weird because I'm always the good kid. I straight A students, like a teacher's pet to do something like that was so crazy. But I just, uh, I just felt, you know what? That, that determination that I will go crazy and I'll go desperate 
for uh, pursuing my passion. That's something that is very precious that should stay with me forever. And that moment came came in my mind, like came up, um, came to me several times when I had a really scary situation where I knew I had to do something, but it's very scary to do it. I think about that building and that that moment remind myself I've gone this far. I can do, I can really uh, do things that otherwise considered scary because I've done it before. Okay, that's an incredible story. You went building to building, handing out your resume as a sophomore. (laughs) Wow. Were you someone who always had confidence or... Did you go building to building, building this muscle of exercising your confidence? I mean, mm-hmm. it takes a lot of courage to do something like that. Yeah, confidence is something that one has to practice. It's not a talent one's born with. Maybe like rapid and maybe like the actors would have that born with them. But for a day-to-day basis, for us, for people in general, you need to practice confidence and the battle imposter syndrome for real, especially for women in the professional space. Like even now, I would think, okay, I'm very confident now, but there's still a lot of moments where it's like, can I really do this? Like in the case of um, my career at DBF, the mom- when the moment arrived where Dan said, to me, oh, it's going to be you. My first reaction was like, wait, are you sure? I think I said something to her, which we talk about in other interviews. So now I can talk about it now. I said to her, wait, are you sure I'm not white? I am um, not even from this country and I'm 31 years old. That was the first thing that, that came out of my mouth, uh, doubting myself. And she said, because you're all of that, I want you to lead my company. And she always says, uh, only your insecurity becomes your asset. And that's so true. That's something you need to think about every day to practice your mu- your muscle, as you said, the confidence muscle. Okay, we're going to get into all of that because I <laughs> definitely want to get your take on that. So you continue going building to building. How did you end up landing a role at Ralph Warren? So I actually uh, heard back from one of the person I passed my resume to. That was actually my uh, foot into the door. I also was able to find to find some alumni from FNM who actually was very senior at Ralph Lauren. Uh, sometimes I run across my emails I send out at around that time, which was I can't even read those emails. It's like. <laughs> pouring my heart uh, on, on, onto the paper. And I must be sending out hundreds of those emails each month, hoping to hear back. So I, uh, I was chosen as one of the special interns slash summer analysts for a very prestigious um, internship uh, program at Ralph Lauren where you rotate uh, through different departments. Um, I was always the first one to arrive and the last one to leave. I was the only intern who was asked to stay after the summer. Um, I also met Raf in the elevator. And uh, where, as, as scary as it is, I practiced my elevator pitch. I think it's called elevator pitch, right? Yes. 15 seconds? Yes, yes. Um, I went straight to the heart, which is I told him, hey, I'm from China. You don't have anyone, intern or employees who are from China. I am. And China is going to be the biggest market in the fashion industry. And I like to dedicate all my being to to you and to the brand. 
And he's like, oh, why don't you uh, go uh, check out our Hong Kong office? That was the year when Ralph Lauren just bought back the APAC um, division. So basically the Hong Kong office now becomes a big headquarters for Ralph Lauren, like belong to Ralph Lauren before it was a, like distributor, like licensing business. Mm-hmm. And then I went straight to the uh, SVP of HR whom I befriended and they told her, so Ralph told me that I should go to Hong Kong. Uh, and I kind of made a big deal out of it. And somehow I still, it's crazy. Somehow I was sent to Hong Kong as a representative of the New York office. So everything paid. I even got a visa uh, from the company and I spent a whole winter in the Hong Kong office, like checking out different departments and contributing to uh, uh, visual merchandising and the strategy. Uh, And I was still in college at that time. Oh my God. I mean, you got your foot in the door, literally. You made an elevator pitch, literally, to a titan of the industry. And that is... Incredible. Wow. Okay. So that is how you got your foot in the door. So you graduate and you're working at Ralph Lauren. The industry is extremely competitive. It's also notoriously pretty judgmental and it's very easy to fall into the trappings of comparison of, you know, comparing your body to other bodies and other forms of beauty standards. How are you able to navigate that and try to limit the comparisons that inevitably everyone at some point or another feels. There are so many types of comparison when it comes to appearance. You know, there's a skin color. So we're talking about race. And there is uh, the physical appearance, uh, which is all related. When I started Ralph Lauren, you know, there's an outlook where you can look up anyone in the company. And uh, I remember doing a search for anyone with um, like a VP title and just like check out their names. And I noticed no one has an Asian name at that time that has a VP title. So that made me feel like, oh, wow, if I want to climb the ladder and be a decision maker uh, at this company, there's going to be some challenge there because I'm Chinese. I'm not, uh, I'm not white and my name's not white. Also, everyone who is important, just so beautiful, so tall. Well, I'm naturally slim because of, um, I'm, because of being Chinese. I'm short. I'm 5'3". So I feel like a little girl um, standing, with, standing uh, behind the other people. And I, I used to wear high heels always. And they're extremely uncomfortable, as you may know. So that's actually what I love the most about the fashion industry that you can see is changing. It's more and more putting women before fashion because of the importance uh, of customer-centric thinking. So now the one of the biggest opportunity in footwear is actually fashion sneakers, comfortable shoes instead of heels. Heels are less and less popular now. I think I benefit and I like to think playing an active part in our industry to push our industry to be less judgmental and to uh, celebrate women more. I love that. I mean, we talk a lot on the podcast and this is a common conversation throughout the world about representation and how it matters. And I'm sure you're aware of the quote, you can't be who you can't see. That must've been really difficult for you to not 
see a lot of people who worked with you, who you reported to, who looked like you. Mm. And I'm I'm so glad to hear that the industry is starting to change. But at the time, it was very different. How did you navigate that and reconcile that? So that goes back to visualizing and designing one's life. I identified myself to be very ambitious. I identified myself to be solution-driven. Even as my level was low, a production assistant and production manager, I would raise my hand and provide solutions that even the SVPs didn't see uh, because I'm, I will be someone who stayed late and just studied the problem. There's a lot of things related to ERP system, like um, a technology savviness. So I, I, I naturally shine. Uh, in that space. And I realized to satisfy my drive to really make change and to be the decision maker for the solutions that I know is the best solution, I need to pivot to a management position. At that time, my manager, Ralph Lauren, told me, you know, to become a like, director at Ralph Lauren, you've got to be in your uh, early 40s or late 30s, which was so true because everyone, because you see everyone, right? Like you kind of, you know, their age. So that's when I decided as much as I love Ralph Lauren at the company, I must accelerate my trajectory by getting a management position. I think my goal was before I turned 29, 28. So I took an offer to join Adium, which is a Japanese luxury brand uh, based in New York. They have a seller office in New York. My ability to speak Japanese, Chinese, and English while also managing fashion and notes production made me the only candidate for that position. So despite, despite my young age, they g- gave me the director level before I turned 28 or 29. So that was the moment where I was like, okay, there is the challenge. What's the best way to overcome that challenge? Hey, how about finding a position where my skill set, my strength is unbeatable and challengeable and language skill in this case is something that one simply cannot uh, obtain easily. And that's how I uh, bridged over that challenge. Yeah, good luck learning Japanese. Well, I mean, based off the stories you're sharing too, you really embraced your identity, even in the elevator, you went to the heart of it that I can provide value because I am different. So I'm so glad you shared that. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit and I want to talk about networking. So you met at the time, the CEO of DBF, and that just helped catapult your career. You met at, I believe, a work conference. And that was a relationship you were able to maintain throughout the years. How did you continue building off that relationship? And what is the importance of networking, in your opinion? Yeah, so important. Sandra is so inspiring and so amazing. She gives such a great talk at the lead conference about uh, I, th- I think I remember exact words she used about uh, pivot or transform a legacy brand to a modern customer centric organization. And that is just uh, inspired me so much because I knew, I know about our industry being slow to change, about decision making not rooted in what women want, 
but rooted in one or two decision makers uh, in terms of it being a taste maker. Uh, so when she talked about changing organization to this customer centric thinking, I genuinely loved it and is so moved by it. So as scary as it is to walk up to her after the conference, and she was like surrounded by so many people, I sort of waited for a long time to talk to her. I think my passion really shines through uh, that even just like one minute conversation she very generously um, gave me her email, which is something that I now try to do the same. Um, and I emailed her and we stayed in touch for, for like throughout almost uh, 10 months before she actually offered me a job. So networking and networking sometimes is not the ideal, it's not the most accurate word. To me, it's about um create that genuine connection based on shared value and shared passion. And that is something that will get you very far. What do you mean by staying in touch for 10 months? Did you send her an email saying, hey, this is what I'm up to, or I think you should read this article? What did you keep in touch? Yep. So I'm a master sending uh, sending emails because, as you recall, I I sent out hundreds of emails without getting responses throughout college. Uh, Sometimes, yeah, when I when I saw this email, I just felt, oh my god, I'm I'm really a crazy person. <laughs> I very rarely got responses, and I would try to make connection with anyone remotely in the fashion industry. So I, of course, sent an introduction email to her, and then. Throughout uh, the 10 months, when I made a big milestone move in my career, I would uh, uh, email her and I'll tell her how the, t- the learning moments from listening to her helped me navigate and achieve the milestones I have. And that's the overall kind of a important tip in creating and the maintaining genuine connections from your networking is that you actually do have to listen, really listen, and then make your mentors feel that they actually make an impact in your life. So now I'm a mentor. I understand it so well now. Like, like nothing beats the, the genuine happiness of seeing your advice and mentorship helped changing another person's life. It doesn't happen easily because it takes a lot of execution and luck at the same time. So I always try to make sure, and it's, it's all genuine, to actually execute my learning in my life. And I will immediately give that feedback to Sandra or to my mentors. I did what you said, and this is what I achieved. Thank you very much. And I think that is so genuine, so amazing, and just so happy. Since I'm speaking to the email queen, email expert, do you recommend sending a couple sentences in an email? Mm-hmm. People don't like reading long messages. So how do you decide how long the email will be, how much information you should include? Should it be a short note or does it vary? Yeah, that's a very that's a very good question because now looking back at the emails I sent when I was in college, Maybe one of the reasons I didn't get much response is I was writing an essay about my life uh, because I was so earnest, right? I wanted to be like, I'm really passionate about industry. I don't know how to get in. This is my life story. And of course, people just didn't have time to read it. Now that I myself get hundreds of emails each day, when the email is very long, if it's important, I put it aside to read when I have quiet time. When it's not important, 
I just like don't remember to respond. So I would definitely suggest initial emails should be short and like very attention grabbing. Often students ask me, how do we even uh, know whom to reach out to? Because it's not like my email is advertised everywhere, right? It's you don't know what my email is unless you have a connection with me. And I would tell students, often you can just write to the general email that you can find on the website, on the brand website, and then just write to whom it uh, it may concern and the kind of write a couple sentences about you want an internship opportunity and such. Often uh, the person who manages that email account will forward your email to um, to the relevant department. So you want to have one email very clear what who you are, what you like to achieve, what skill set you have with the resume and the contact information. Make it so easy to forward and for the team to get back to you. That's normally will work. How did the fashion industry change you? I know it's a very broad question but it's a ever changing ever evolving industry and the industry has like every other industry has some really great people and it also has people you would prefer never to meet again in your life so how did you try to navigate staying true to who you are being your most authentic self while also trying to navigate some of the nuances of making a name for yourself in the industry and trying to stay relevant for industry it's about change Fashion industry is really the perfect space to be in if one doesn't fit in. Because when you don't fit in, you have unique edge to yourself that no one else has. Because the industry is about change, it's inevitable that your uniqueness will be embraced at some point. So even in early 2000s, being a Chinese, especially Chinese Chinese, not even American Chinese, is considered as outsider and not uh, like an edge. Now it's so such an edge because I'm sure you read the news. China is basically uh, such a huge part of the fashion industry reporting because it is a world, it's a society where the spending and the, I would call it desire to where designers to go to shopping malls and to seek the, the, the biggest name, the highest quality is like expanding because society is, is expanding. So for brands like Ralph Lauren, DVF, any other brands, if you don't have China, you're not going to survive. You have China, you're going to be one of the strongest brands. Mm. So in this case, having the patience and having the termina- determination to stay in the industry, to keep building myself up. Now I've, I've gotten the best time in our industry where China and my background perfectly overlapped. That would be the advice for, for everyone, have the pers- uh, perseverance to stay true to yourself. And you predicted it in the elevator years ago. Yeah, no way. Like at that time... There was no, like, I remember uh, going to the merchandising department. I was in production. So it's very, it's like, no one does that. Like, you just go to a different building, different department to talk about strategies. And I did, I proposed a Chinese New Year capsule collection, utilizing the color of uh, red and gold. Uh, there was no such a thing in Chinese New Year. It was the CNY, Chinese New Year capsule. Now every single brand is doing that. We're doing that. We're doing a pretty good job with the CNY capsule at DVF. So 
you're at DVF now, you're leading the company as president. What is it like to work with DVF? What did you learn from her? What is like the standout? Oh my God, so much. She changed my life entirely in such a fundamental way. First, she and I talk like three, five hours a day. So that influence, that immediacy is, is life-changing, right? I'm, I'm working on something uh, to, with, I call Deviate Media to scale her mentorship, to really spread her wisdom to all women around the world, which is Diane's passion to pass her connection, wisdom, and experience to lift women up around the world. I directly benefit from her teaching because we talk every day. So as I mentioned earlier, when I had my doubt, which you notice our relationship so genuine that I just said it to her, right? I didn't hide it. I didn't uh, treat her like a typical boss or manager that I have to hide my fear or nervousness from. I said to her, wait, why are you choosing me? I'm not, I'm not white. I'm not from this country. And I'm only 30. I'm, I'm, I'm not like basically all white men, <laughs> a typical CEO's presence of a big company. But if it's, it's, it's actually a small, uh, small brand, so not big brand. Uh, and she would uh, tell me like insecurities and uh, weakness sometimes are the best thing because by embracing it, she would say by owning it, it becomes your strength, becomes your asset. And that's so true. Another thing that she fundamentally changed me, and that's not something that people talk about every day, is actually about death. She is 74 years old. She thinks about the time, often time is most single valuable asset versus for a typical uh, young person, it seems that time is infinite. You have all the time in the world to spend, but that's such an illusion. Because of her, I really slice my time in a very strategic way. I, 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 this is one thing I'm so proud of that I would say that I'm spending every single hour of my life in a fully optimized way because Diane taught me that our time is not infinite, it's finite. And to use, use the time in a genuine, passionate, and intelligent way is the most important thing. Was it difficult for you to accept for people to take you seriously? Because like you said, you're not, you don't fit in. You don't look like a lot of the people who typically serve in your position. So much. And I did a lot of things to help myself navigate and outgrow from that self-doubt. So I have Diane as my biggest cheerleaders. I also uh, have an executive coach uh, who has been very helpful. And when I told her I have this anxiety about how the world, I mean, not the world, but how the industry think of the fact that now DVF is led by this 32-year-old Chinese girl, um, I, I, I got pretty anxious about that. And then the coach told me one thing. She said, but think about you each day. Ground yourself in every single day's work and the happiness 
and the genuine satisfaction, which I have every single day with our team, because we're really building DBF now. It's a, it's like, like kind of entrepreneurship startup and everyone worked together so well together. And each day we felt like we achieved the weeks of work within one day. We literally did with the new DBF.com launching on Shopify. And I realized, yeah, I cannot let the noise of people I don't know or who don't know me uh, overwhelm me and make me forget who I am. Uh, the best way to do that is to think about each day's work and think about the team I work with. Thirdly, uh, something really interesting is that when I told the news to uh, my friends, my colleagues, my ex-colleagues, my old managers, most interesting is that everyone said, yeah, not surprised at all. It sounds, it sounds like you. It sounds like, uh, like, like it's exactly your plan. No, no one who know me would even have those thoughts. And then I realized sometimes you truly just fabricate doubt in your head. Um, and you have to remember who you are and you have to trust the people who know, who know you uh, will not be surprised. <laughs> If you could leave our listeners with one lasting piece of advice, what would that be? Find your passion and double down your edge. Love that. Gabby, thank you so much for joining. Thank you too. What are great questions? Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. And if there's anyone you think we should have on our show, let me know. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you all then. Take care, everyone.